Okay, I think we're live now. This is Joining Us in Podcasting, and we have a, a Tel Aviv visit to a Reggio Emilia school. If you wouldn't mind introducing yourself and just saying where we are, who you are. Okay. My name is Rachel Fink, and I am the director of the JECC, which stands for the Journey Early Childhood Center. We are a bilingual kindergarten in Tel Aviv um, that is Reggio inspired. You are from the States, Louisiana, I believe. You come to Israel for multiple purposes. <laughs> and then when you, what I understand is when you started the school, it was part discontent with not finding the, the right learning space that you have been searching for. And second, you have kids of your own. So right. to create the, the empathy project, to create the perfect school for, for your kids. Right. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. The original school um, was created right as my daughter was finishing her, her very young daycare and needed to go into pre-K and kindergarten. Um, and I, I did what so many people do. I didn't find the right thing, so I decided to create for her. Um, and I think the most interesting part was along the way, um, we found that there were parents who were looking for the same thing, and even more, there were teachers who were looking for a space like this. And sort of interview after interview, we collected stories of, I was teaching in the school and I really wasn't happy. I'm looking for a place that really takes children and teaching seriously. Um, and the whole beginning of the school, and then the, the big growth that we did from the first year to the second year, really had a feel of, I can't help but make the parallel to Reggio, of a community of people who wanted something better. Um, and it had this feeling of people coming together and representing their own voice of what they wanted, but also kind of wanting to create this community for others. You mentioned that uh, in Reggio teachings, one of the things they try to teach is that you create your own school and your own identity as a school. In your experiences coming from the States, but also immersing in Israeli culture, you mentioned projects that would have come before, context that this would make sense to Israeli people, Kibbutz system, and other, you mentioned Dr. Zoan, who's done some groundwork here in Israel. How does this find a nest space in Israel, and, and what's that been like? As the community of Reggio-inspired educators came together here, and it's been 20 years in the making, one thing that people, um, Nam realized was, was that there was a parallel between um, a lot of Reggio-inspired teaching and values and the kibbutz system. Um, I think children as uh, extraordinarily curious, competent learners who need time and space to build their own learning uh, is something that one-for-one one, um, the kibbutz movement developed in their own educational system and something that Reggio has obviously been doing now for 70-plus years. Um, and schools like us uh, want to create a context for Reggio, I think we take from, from both of those places. So how do we bring it into um, a, a, a school where some parents grew up in that kind of context? We get lots of teachers who um, were part of the kibbutz movement. Um, and how do we blend that with, obviously, this very urban, <laughs> non-kibbutz life that we have here in the middle of Tel Aviv? So for those not oriented in the kibbutz system, uh, as I loosely understand it, it was the construction of, of a new Israel. Right. And, and this was actually like the constructivist approach was to create these work farms where people would live semi-communally. Exactly. Uh, and the approach to children, children had their own sleeping spaces. Yes. They didn't sleep with their so, parents. Right, exactly. So um, the very, very original early iterations of Kibbutzim had these Beit where children slept 
all together and the parents kind of came to visit them uh, and there was sort of this mentality of the children belong to everyone the way that everything belongs to everyone. They had slowly moved away from that and now doesn't exist at all um, but the kibbutz movement does have its own educational system where children are children preschool children are educated on the kibbutz um, and it's its own separate system it's you know, the kibbutzim themselves have moved from completely communal to privatized, um, but the educational system is still a public system. So Reggio Media post-World War II project in Italy, as I understand it, it was the, the re-piecing, the reconstruction of, um, of school. And from people who wanted something new and they wanted to create exactly. a, a new kind of learning and a different kind of approach to what we would call childhood. Yes. How does that overlay in Israel, uh, and how is that so appropriate here? I would say. Right. Um, so I remember when we, uh, the building that we're currently in was a complete um, construction zone when we first brought parents in to tell them about the projects and tell them what we were doing, and I, I said I'm very struck by, um, you know, how the people of Reggio Emilia, the, the village of Reggio Emilia, must have felt, you know. They're standing in these literally bombed out buildings talking about building a new school. Obviously, we can't compare this very flourishing, developing city of Tel Aviv to that. Um, but there was an idea that every single person, whether they were a parent or not, whether they were planning on having children or not, had something to give and that it was important to give to this project of rebuilding um, and that the only way that they could start rebuilding was through the children. And the reason that I feel that it's, um, it fits into this context, which is obviously very different, um, is that we too are on a precipice of recognizing how important these years are and how much of a fundamental change we can impact by starting, not at first grade, not at second grade, not in high school, not in the universities, but starting from children. Um, and I think that's what was so beautiful about the JCC is that we were literally building something from nothing. We weren't coming into a school and changing it. We had nothing here, um, and we had a group of people who were ready to support that, and that's how the school is developed. So people who work in progressive childhood education movements are very familiar and very comfortable with the idea of children is uh, constructing both personally and collectively, I kind of want to explain this a different way, about what I've been exposed to in the Reggio Emilia program is that it's very much about child as a part and living, breathing part of society and yes. contributing to society. Yes, a citizen. A citizen. How does that fit the inclusiveness with the Israeli approach to childhood? Does that yeah, make sense? yeah. Um, so, first of all, I think we, we um, have something very beautiful here, which is um, that children are a central part of life here and family. So we're, we're starting off from a good place that, that, you know, children are very visible here. They're very seen here, um, especially in Tel Aviv. It is a, a city that in some ways welcomes children and other kind of on the political side of things has, has room to grow in, in how we welcome children. And um, I think using the terms uh, citizens and, and fully developed humans, that's important for looking at quality of early childhood as a right. Um, once you start using terms like citizens and rights, um, it changes. First of all, I think it changes from something that should only be available to the elite to something that should be available for everyone. Um, and I think it highlights how, how important it is. Um, and that is something that we take from Malaguzzi, the founder of Reggio Emilia. That every single child has a right to 
quality early childhood. Um, and now the task becomes, what does that mean? So then the reverse question would be, not just how it's inclusive, but how has it been uh, a shock or a conflict? You mentioned something about the the 20 trees, yeah. uh, and, and you're not finding the right uh, learning creative space for kids. Um, can you unpack that? Yes. Um, so universally, what all school systems who consider themselves Reggio-inspired take from Reggio, and I think it's probably the most important thing, um, is the image of children. What image do we have of children? Like you said, what what is childhood and, and what is a child? I think once you make the shift in your mind to children as not empty vessels that we need to sort of fill up with our own learning, but competent, capable learners who are interested in learning, who are motivated to learn, who are um, busy constructing their own knowledge. It, ch it, it will change everything that you have in your school. I think if you understand that that's really who children are, you would not be able to permit yourself to give them a tree and say you have to fill this in exactly the way I tell you and you can't get up until you're done because then there's a clash between the image of children and, and what you're giving to them. And when we think about the JECC as um, a catalyst for change, um, I think it's very easy to come in here and say, oh, we only have 15 children or, you know, the, um, the conditions, oh, we could never have that. And, and I understand those things and it's, it's um, what happens for a lot of people when they go see Reggio themselves. They say, oh, we could never do this, our schools are not this big. But if you take all of that away, you strip, strip it down to how do you see the child standing in front of you, that is what is going to affect change on the ground and what's actually happening in the classrooms. How did, what's your experience been as far as how it validates the individual, but also takes advantage of the collective construction around you? That is a question that we are busy uh, exploring with ourselves every day. It's interesting that you ask that, the role of the individual versus the role of the group. Uh, it's something that the children bring to us all the time. It can be something as simple as, uh, you know, two children who are very busy at the water table, but it's morning meeting time now, and... A morning meeting is one of the things that we ask children to come to collectively as a group, and right there we have an example of the tension. Um, and it's a question I get asked about projects all the time. Uh, what happens if only one child is interested in, in, in what he's bringing to you? How do you bring it to the group? Um, we say that uh, the biggest resource for children, um, biggest learning resource for children, is the children themselves. So. Even if one child is asking a question, the first thing that the teacher will do is bring it to the group um, so that the child's rights to be interested in what he's interested in are represented, um, but that he understands that that's, that learning is taking place in a larger context of other children. And I think, for me, the most amazing thing about children, really, is their willingness to both use other children, use their peers as a resource, and be a resource for children. And, and in that way, the, the individual in the group gets naturally represented. Uh, and the biggest example of that in our school, for our identity, is language. Uh, we have both children and teachers who are not as comfortable in the L2 language, in the language that's not their um, second language. And both children and teachers use children as a resource. So you will see from a two-year-old to a six-year-old naturally translating for a child or a teacher mm -hmm. that needs help. It's kind of an amazing moment to watch. Um, we all talk about this one moment where a teacher who didn't speak Hebrew 
uh, was talking to a child who was speaking in Hebrew, and another child who was not even 18 months at the time was making the noise of the animal to help the teacher understand. And uh, you know, you can say all the time that children are competent and capable, but when they show you in such a deeply powerful way, it, it's still, it, I've been talking about this for almost 20 years, it can still kind of take your breath away when you realize just how competent and capable they are. I mean, that's a child who had to, not even a year and a half, had to understand the entire dynamic about what was going on mm -hmm. and how with his limited verbal language he could help an adult who needed help. Um, and then that goes all the way straight up to to our kindergarten class where they're kind of fully translating morning meeting at the same time that it's happening. So you've been exposed to Reggio Media programs in New York City and you said that it's it's kind of maybe behind here. The, the flip side of that is uh, I find this very fascinating, the question of the Hebrew language in, in the national and personal identity. Yeah. That you're talking about a language that was the, the clerical language that was not necessarily a living, right, breathing language. Right, until it became modernized. And, yeah. and yet you're also talking about this kind of like reconstruction of like this idea of childhood at the same time. Yeah. Uh, what has been your experience is Reggio here and Reggio other places, like what stands out to you? So I think that, um, I, don't, I don't think America is in any way behind in Reggio. Um, I just think that um, Reggio for me was one thing when I saw it in the school that I taught in. Uh, then I went to Reggio and it was Reggio, Reggio like Reggio in Italy and it was com something completely different. Mm -hmm. um, and then, and, and they say this all the time in Reggio, that uh, the approach is about interpreting it for your context. And then I had the opportunity to do that. We had the opportunity to do that for ourselves here. Um, and um, for me in a school that is bilingual, um, and a school that very much exists within the Israeli context. It's about um, all of the things that represent Israel as a culture meeting the values of Reggio Emilia. So even something like Hebrew, um, because we believe that no learning exists um, outside of a context, because Hebrew is such an important part of who we are, um, we have had to think a lot about the development of Hebrew, its original context, um, how Hebrew has been changed now to affect modern times. Um, that all goes into the way that we interpret Hebrew in our, in our identity. Mm. Um, and then as soon as you go back to its biblical origins, you're then faced with another round of questions of Judaism and people's connection to that here and people's connection to Hebrew as a biblical language. And um, I think that's what makes the job interesting for right. sure, and well, challenging. Um, let's talk about tools, because as we walked around the space, I, I see two different things at play. One is the tools of construction, that they're all over the place, yes. from the potion laboratory <laughs> that we saw at the entrance, to the wood blocks, to the, the musical instrument room where there's numerous percussion things for the kids to pick up and, and explore. And then the second part is that the the tool of, I guess, artifact that sparks inquiry, mm -hmm. that you, you have things about that would, that would na be natural focuses of wonder. Um, how, how does that come into play? Right, so um, what that we, we take from Reggio, that every material is an invitation, uh, an invitation for learning and an invitation for exploration. Um, and children respond to the kind of invitation that you give them. So I think there's a huge difference between kind of coming in the morning and slapping a puzzle on the table and saying, 
this is an invitation to the kind of learning I want you to do, and uh, creating, like what you said, um, uh, an invitation that sparks wonder. So uh, it can be, you know, you saw how simple the materials are here. Pine cones and toilet paper rolls and you know wood chips that we found uh, basically lying around on the street. Um, but I think a the way that you present them uh, and b the uh, tools of support that you give to them. Um, first of all, they they do their job. They they inspire wonder and children want to come to them. But I think even more than that, they send a very important message to the children about what we think of their learning uh, that we take it seriously that um, we want to present them with beautiful environments and beautiful invitations because we believe that their learning is beautiful and I think it's the reason why teachers take uh, such time to think about how things are presented to them. You know, uh, even if, if we want children to draw a flower, uh, I think there's a difference between giving children a flower and a vase and a yellow crayon and a green crayon and a small piece of paper and giving them all different sizes of paper and all different shapes and all different materials to create it out of. Um, the product will be different, but even more than that, the message of what we think of their learning is very different. The word documentation across <laughs> teaching... Strikes fear in the hearts of many. <laughs> <laughs> in the teaching world, it can mean many things, but I also found it just a very interesting word to move across professions, that graphic mm -hmm. designers think about documentation as something completely different than, say, a programmer, where it's very much about leaving the instructions of your path and how you right. figured this thing out so that other people can come work with your code. But Regimedio is a very specific uh, kind of documentation as artifact, both for, well, I mean, I see kind of three different areas, maybe there's, there's more. Uh, one is a teacher reflection tool. Right. Uh, one is artifact of learning, both right. episodic and process product. And then the third one is the threading of community, of uh, sending these out or having them on display so that anyone who enters the, the, the part of this community Absolutely. will have their reflection point as well. And also that they, the, um, the documentation for us is a living, breathing organism. So um, we, we know that documentation is good when it strikes dialogue or debate. So, you know, some documentation we send out and, and um, you know, we get kind of lovely activity and I'm glad that the kids had fun and some uh, sparks real debate and dialogue among the parents and the parents are reading it to the children and the children are adding voices that the, the parents uh, then come back and essentially do their own documentation and report back to us. Um, and that's when we know the documentation is good, um, when it is the catalyst for real dialogue. Um, and that's an amazing opportunity for us to, first of all, present our values and our approach, but also make parents active participants. Yeah, that's the, the next question I was going to kind of follow up on is how has that been a struggle as far as showing parents photographs and dialogues and having them actually interact with and right. understand that this is not some scrapbook that you're piecing together right. that these are... I remember the first time I went to Reggio, I, you know, you, you worry so much about, is your question going to be good? And that was the only question I had the guts to ask the presenter was, do, do you struggle with people reading the, the, the documentation? And her immediate answer was yes, and I, I felt much more relaxed to, if they're struggling with that in Reggio. Um, and we, we, we struggle with that also, although I think the better the documentation, the more parents are willing to engage in it. Um, we have learned um, how, to say, how to say things in one sentence instead of 10 sentences and, and all of those things. 
Um, and I think the more we make the children's learning visible, uh, the more parents will will want to engage in it. So there is a difference between sending home a picture of uh, look what your child made and and sending home look how your child learned through what they made. Um, and I think uh, we've been very lucky that um, there are certain parents who got it from the beginning and they kind of passed it on to how important it is to other parents and you know it's it's uh, something we're constantly working on but you know the second a parent writes back and says I was wondering about this or well I, I saw you didn't intervene there I, wh why didn't you just say we should all we should all share our toys and to me that's a great question because it allows us to explain even further why we made the choice not to intervene there fascinating you said something about space as a mixture, I'm not sure I got the whole thing, but space is like part of the ecology um, of, of a learning environment, and that tools is all having this potential. Yes. Uh, so I, I approach that more through kind of like activity theory, where any tool that you put into a learning environment can drastically change how the collaborative effort works, how the rules and the, the cultural rules work. Like it, it can, it, any tool that you enter can literally be seen as like catalyst for a different kind of cognition? We would, we would say it um, a little bit differently, although I think at the end of the day the message is the same, which is that every, everything in the environment sends a message. Every single thing. Um, and, you know, from, from our decision to put the, um, the, the railing of the stairs where the children can reach it, so that those staircases convey the message that we, we expect that you would be walking up these stairs on your own and not being carried by a parent, um, to you know, uh, a light table, to our decision to use glass jars instead of plastic. Uh, every single thing that we put into the environment sends a message. Now, those two things can be broken into two categories. One of them is the deliberate messages that we choose to send, and like I said to you, that's uh, reflected in our decision to use recycled materials whenever possible. Um, but what the teachers are actively engaged in is uh, looking around their learning spaces to see what messages they've accidentally <laughs> conveyed, maybe without meaning to or without re realizing. Um, and then again, it becomes a question of does, does what we put in the space match our image of children as competent and capable? Is there anything in the space that doesn't convey that message? Um, even things like... Um, what, what's hanging on the door when you first come in? That's the very first thing a child, a parent, a visitor will see in your space. What message are you conveying? Um, and so we, we know that, like you said, every single thing that's in the environment can be the catalyst for something. Our question is really looking at what, what is it? What is, what is it that we want the, the catalyst to be? I would like to talk more, but I have a flight. So I guess the last thing I want to ask you is just, uh, you, apparently you've had major success. You started with only 20 kids. 12, in, in 12. A, 12 kids in, in a, in a one-room of an apartment, yeah. and, and now you have uh, this giant structure here, 70-something yeah. kids. Where would you like to see this go from here? That question is easy to answer and hard to execute. Um, for us, our interest is um, in making this kind of education uh, accessible to um, a wider variety of socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, and that, that is 
within the school and also how do we bring our approach to education outside of the four walls of the JCC. That's really, if I had to explain the project as opposed to just the school, um, it's about how do we um, bring, bring, bring children in but also bring the education out. So uh, forming partnerships with different educational and very different educational environments. Um, so that teachers can come here and um, just as we did in Rancho, take what they can from here and adopt it to their context. Very good. Yeah, I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs>